We come before You humbled that You are this Father that loves us, that pursued us. Even though we have sinned against You, we've wandered away, we've turned our backs and our hearts were, were cold and hard toward You because of sin. Lord, You pursued us. And it is that loving kindness and that, and that, that pursuit that, that won us. That we came to the point, much like what we saw even in Lennon's own baptism, her testimony this morning, Lord, that You, you saved us from our sin when we call on Jesus. My prayer is that even now, there would be students who would hear that gospel message and respond to you this morning. And through the preaching of your word and, and, and the work of your Holy Spirit, even in this moment, Lord, we're praying for a movement of your Holy Spirit that you would stir our hearts to respond in obedience. And if there's anyone here in this room or perhaps listening this morning, they might be drawn to faith in Jesus as we exalt you in this place. Jesus be everything that we might surrender all that we have to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a great morning so far, uh, but I'm excited for what's to come in just a moment because we're going to hear today from my dear friend, Dr. Todd Fisher, who is the executive director treasurer of Oklahoma Baptist. And so we're going we're to hear from him in a moment. Before we do that, though, I need to dismiss our kids to head to kids' crew. So all around the room this morning, we have our children, our children's leadership, and they're going to make their way down to the front, and they're going to head upstairs to our kids' crew room for a time of worship, the design specifically for them as they engage with the gospel, engage with this truth. Always a bunch of fun to see their faces as they head upstairs. Excited for them to do that this morning. Well, so let me share with you just a, a little story uh, in November of 2020, at the annual meeting of Oklahoma Baptist, I was selected to serve as the first vice president of Oklahoma Baptist, and the guy that was chosen to serve our state convention as the president was the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Shawnee, and his name is Todd Fisher. And throughout the course of that year, we built a friendship, and, and uh, it was my privilege to to uh, serve alongside him and, and, and get to know him, build that friendship. And then in the summer of 2020, I guess that would have been the summer of 21, uh, as we got into the spring and the summer of 21, Hans Dilbeck accepted the call. He was then the executive director. He accepted the call to serve as the head of what's called Water's Edge. Uh, not sorry, Water's Edge is our Oklahoma branch, rather of uh, Guidestone, which is uh, the, years ago it was known as the, the Southern Baptist Annuity Board, but now they do more than just annuities, but it's a, a group that has a tremendous ministry to uh, Baptist leadership and, and pastors and their families. And so Hans accepted that role, which left a vacancy. Well, there was a, a group of us who pretty immediately began, like, you know, talking like people do, and, and we were saying, we all think that Todd Fisher ought to be the guy. Uh, but officially, there was a process that he needed to go through in all of that and uh, through all of a chain of events, and, and, and I won't bore you with all the details, but through all of that, God worked 
to raise up Todd Fisher as the next executive director of Oklahoma Baptist. And so last year, last November at our annual meeting, he was installed. And so he hit the ground running and hasn't quit since. I don't know if he's even slept from November to now. He's just been on the go. But months ago, uh, I reached out to his office and said, hey, we'd love to get him here at Chickasha. And he's been in such demand that even though we scheduled this like in, I think it was January or something, uh, here we are today in August. And and finally, the day has come that he's going to share with us. So would you join me in giving a warm welcome as we welcome to the stage my good friend, Dr. Todd Fisher, Executive Director of Oklahoma Baptist. Well, thank you for that very kind introduction, Michael. Uh, I invite you to speak at my funeral. <laughs> those, are, those are nice words. Let me tell you, First Baptist Chickasha, you have a gem in your pastor, Michael Butler. If you don't know that... <clears throat> You, uh, you need to be very grateful for him. He is an outstanding, outstanding pastor. The only thing I regret about my friendship with Michael Butler is that it didn't start about 20 years before it did. So uh, we, as he said, we, it, it wasn't until about 2020 when we actually got to know each other and become friends. And uh, I've really enjoyed uh, his friendship, and he's been an encouragement to me. And so grateful that we have someone like Michael and a church like First Baptist Chickasha uh, in our state. So thank you, Michael, for the invitation to be here. Uh, I bring you greetings on behalf of almost 1,800 Southern Baptist churches in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, A lot of people kind of drop their jaw, 1,800, and we do. We have a lot of uh, Southern Baptist churches in our state. Um, Most of them, about 1,400 of those 1,800, are actually much smaller than your church. Uh, They have, on average, about a, a, a Sunday morning attendance of 100 or fewer. And so we're a convention of small churches, but small or large, it doesn't matter, in location, rural, or in a city, doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that we are partnering together in what we call the cooperative program. And I want to say, uh, as the executive director for Oklahoma Baptist, a very big heartfelt thank you to this church. This church is a very strong supporter of the cooperative program. Um, what happens with the cooperative program? You, you, you may or may not know, but your church gives a certain percentage of its undesignated receipts to the cooperative program. And that gets sent to us, to the Baptist Building in Oklahoma City. And uh, we, we keep about 42% of that, and we fund things like Falls Creek and Cross Timbers and Baptist Collegiate Ministry and Oklahoma Baptist Disaster Relief. Uh, we fund all kinds of great ministries right here in Oklahoma. And then about 15% of that stays with uh, things like Oklahoma Baptist University and the Children's Home and the Retirement Center and Water's Edge, as Michael mentioned. And then a little bit, almost half, we send to Nashville. And uh, we send that, and about half of that half goes to the International Mission Board and then North American Mission Board and six Southern Baptist seminaries. So here's the amazing thing. If you did not realize every single time you just give an undesignated gift to this church, you have helped support, in part, every single one of the ministries and missions I just mentioned. And it's amazing to think that you can do that just with your gift. And so no other denomination or religious body in the world funds missions and ministries like that. And we have done that for almost 100 years now, cooperatively, through the cooperative program. I I noticed even in your bulletin, part of uh, what we do, you have the uh, the Edna McMillan State Mission offering in here. And uh, anything and everything you give to the Edna McMillan State Mission offering, 100% of that goes to missions right here in our state. 
And if you'll take a moment, not while I'm preaching, but if you'll take a moment sometime and look, our focus this year is African-American ministry and deaf ministry and, uh, and refugee ministry. And so we're just so grateful for your support to help advance the gospel, not just in our state, but all over the world. So thank you for that. Now, uh, you did not come to church to hear a stump speech about the cooperative program. You're getting bored with it. Hey, I was getting bored with it. So let's, uh, let's just kind of have a message from God. I, I want to share a text with you, just a very brief text with you this morning, and just in, hopefully to encourage you from uh, the book of Exodus chapter 3. From Moses' life uh, early on, not early on in his life, but early on in uh, his ministry as God is about to call him to be a, a, a pivotal part of freeing his children from bondage, from slavery uh, in Egypt. Now, if you think about it, the book of Exodus just really highlights and reveals the transformation of the man Moses. Now, I, th- I think a lot of us like stories of transformation. I don't know if you're like me, but it's always kind of fun to, uh, it, it, it's fun to see those, those, those pictures, those those TV shows where they took a house and it was old and shoddy and beat up, and then they put all this money and blood and sweat and tears and effort into it, and then boom, here, here's what it looks like. Those are kind of fun, right? Uh, we like to see transformations even of the human body, right? Here's a person, I look like this in January, and 10 months later, I've lost all this weight and all this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it just we like stories of transformation because we see someone's put work and discipline and effort. By the way, I have learned personally in my life that diets actually work. It's people that don't. So you can, I'll probably think about that eating an enchilada today at lunch. Um, But if you think about it, the book of Exodus just kind of highlights this similar kind of transformation in the man Moses. Now, let let me explain it to you for a second. So when we come to the text that we're going to read this morning in Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses has, has, has lived a, quite a long while now. Moses has been out. He, 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 he murdered uh, an Egyptian soldier, and so he was exiled and banished. And now he's been out in the wilderness for about 40 years, just taking care of his father-in-law's flocks. And God calls him up to the mountain and standing in front of a burning bush, a bush that does not consume even though it's on fire, God calls Moses to this, this Herculean task. I want you to go into Egypt, and you got to remember, Egypt, this is the world's greatest power, the world's greatest army. Pharaoh is the world's most powerful, wealthiest figure in the world at this time. And he says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go into there, the most powerful country in the world, and I want you to liberate my people who have been in bondage there for a very long time. Now, this is Moses' response, if you remember the story, right? Moses' response to to God speaking to him through the burning bush is basically, uh, 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 me? Remember? And I mean, everything Moses gives to God is just an excuse. Oh, wait a minute, God. You know, I I can't go in there and do that. I I can't even string a sentence together. I I stutter and I stammer too much. God, if I go in there, what if they don't believe me? Or what if Pharaoh hurts me? Or, you know, I, I, I can't do this. And what's amazing is you see Moses in Exodus 3 as this cowering figure who wants to do anything but do what God tells him. In fact, you get to chapter 4, if we were able to be able to keep reading this one, you get to chapter 4, and Moses just straight up looks at God and says, God, send somebody else. That's him. 
And then all you got to do is go 10 chapters ahead. And you come to Exodus 14. And all of a sudden, the Moses of Exodus 3 is a very, very different Moses from chapter 14. Because what's happened in chapter 14? Well, by now, he's gone into Egypt. He's gone through all of this. He's liberated him. Here come, here, here come all of the Hebrews. I mean, some scholars say this is as many as one to two million people that he's walked out of Egypt. And now here they come in Exodus 14, and they are standing. Moses has his toes on the shore of the Red Sea. And behind him are all of these Hebrews that he's just liberated. And behind them, they can hear the thundering hoof prints beats and the wheels of the chariots of Pharaoh's army coming to get him. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, with all these people behind him, with this big sea in front of him. By the way, I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I think that really was a sea, and I think God really did a miracle there. You know, I've read, though, some scholars say, you know, it was the Reed Sea. It was only ankle deep, and a really hot wind came and happened to dry the ocean over, and that's how they crossed. Hey, look, you know what? If you want to call the Red Sea the Reed Sea and say it was only ankle deep, fine. That, to me, makes it an even a bigger miracle because that means God drowned that whole Egyptian army in ankle deep water, okay? So that's just my take on it. But here he is. Now, if this was the Moses of Exodus 3, with the people behind him, the sea in front of him, and the Egyptian army bearing down on him, I mean, this Moses would have just melted into the sand. He would have said, get me out of here. But what do we read in chapter 14? He turns around, he looks at the people, and he says, step back and watch the powerful hand of God. Whoa, there's a big transformation from Moses chapter 3 to Moses chapter 14. And we obviously ask the question, well, what caused that transformation? I think we see it, the beginning of it, in the verses that we're going to read this morning in Exodus 3. And what we're going to read here is that Moses went from just kind of confidence in anyone or anything other than God, he went from that kind of no confidence to a confidence, not in himself, not in someone else, but in God. So let's read Exodus chapter 3. Let's begin with verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? By the way, in context, I don't even think that's an honest answer or an honest question. That's actually another excuse. (laughs) Oh, God, I I can't go into Egypt and liberate the people. I don't even know who you are, really. I don't even know your name. I don't even know what I would say to these people. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now, remember, that's not God trying to sound like Popeye right there, right? That is God giving Moses his name. His name is I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. 
And God also said to Moses in verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the transformation of Moses begins when he understands that God's name is I Now, what I want to argue for you this morning is that the greatest kind of confidence you can have is a confidence in God, a God confidence. Now, there's lots of different kind of confidences that you can have. Uh, You can have self-confidence. By the way, self-confidence in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you're going into a big test or you're going into a big job interview, you know, it's it's not bad to be self-confident. But if your whole worldview and every bit of your confidence is ultimately rooted and seated in you, it will eventually break down. Because you, me, we are sinners. We, are, we have feet of clay. And if everything about my life is built around me, eventually it's going to collapse because I'm not perfect. I'm not the one who created the universe. I'm not the one who established what is right and wrong and true and moral and immoral. That's not me. And so if everything about you in your life kind of ultimately rests on you, be careful and be warned. Eventually, if it's all built upon you, it's going to break down. Um, You remember Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali was the example, he was the epitome of uh, self-confidence, right? You know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. And what was Muhammad Ali's kind of mantra? His mantra was, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest, right? And remember the little old anecdotal story about Muhammad Ali on the airplane? Uh, he's, he's on the airplane, he's sitting there, and the stewardess walks by and says, Mr. Ali, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And Muhammad Ali looks at the stewardess and says, Superman don't need no, super, no, no seatbelt. And she kindly looked at him and said, Superman don't need no airplane. Now, buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> you know, eventually it's just going to break down. You've got self-confidence. You have, you have a leader confidence. Sometimes we, we, we can have a, a courage engendered within us when we're following someone that could, that could encourage us to do something that we wouldn't do on our own. I mean, you think of Winston Churchill, you think of Abraham Lincoln, my goodness, you think of Zelensky in the Ukraine right now. And then you have group confidence. Sometimes we, we're kind of encouraged to do more than we ought, than we could, if we're with a group of people. But the problem is, if your confidence, if everything about your life is built around you or another person or another group of persons, the problem is these are all persons, and they're all sinners, and eventually it's going to break down. And so the greatest confidence you can have is a confidence in God who will never break down. He is perfect. He is steadfast. Now, listen, friends, we need this kind of confidence. Let me tell you an interesting little stat, okay? This, this is... This will make you go, wow, listen to this. Since 2010, in the last 12 years, listen to this, there have been 10,000 books written and published with the word identity in the title. Now look at me, I'm going to tell you something. This nation 
is in an identity crisis. We really, really want to know how did we get here? What is the purpose of me being here? And what will happen to me when I die? I'm going to tell you right now, friends, the only source that satisfactorily answers those questions is in my hand right here. And so I don't need confidence in anything other than God. He is the greatest source of confidence. So then that just comes to the question, okay, I, I, you got me, preacher, but how do I have God confidence? Well, let's look at this text that we read, and let's just learn a few things from Moses, okay? And learn a few things from what God says to him. Now, if you're jotting things down, here's the first thing I want you to know about how to have a God confidence. Here it comes. You, you will have a God confidence when you come to realize that God is always with you, right? He's always with you. He's always present. And if you think about it, that's very important because when do I really need confidence? I, I need confidence in challenging, trying times. I, I need confidence at home and work and school, you name it. And it doesn't matter where you go, and it doesn't matter what stage or season of life you're in, God is always with you. Now, how do you know that? Where do you get that out of this text? Well, look at God's name. Moses said to him, uh, God, I can't go in there. I don't even know what to call you. I, I don't even know. And he says, my name is I am. Say to the people, I am sent me to you. And by the way, if you want to talk about confidence for just a second, I am. Not, not I have been, not I will be, just I am. And if you, if you, if you just, just try to put your mind around that for a minute, it's amazing to think, of just how, how powerful and, and other than us God is. Okay, you realize that the Bible teaches God has no beginning and no end, right? He is infinite. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. And our little four-pound brains cannot wrap our minds around that. But if you just think about it, I mean, listen, there has to be someone who exists outside of time and space who created all this and brought all this into motion. And how did God bring all of this into existence? What does the word say? He just spoke it into existence. And he didn't go to Home Depot, Universal Home Depot, and really break a sweat, build on I me. Mean, he just spoke it. And everything that exists was. Now, don't you want to follow that kind of a powerful, perfect person instead of yourself or anyone else you can think of? But let's just think about how he is with us. Let's think about the name I am for a second. Now, uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but I think most of you would say I, you've heard of the name Yahweh before. Well, this is God's name here. I am is most closely associated with the name for God, Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's name in the Old Testament. It appears over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Yahweh is God's name that's kind of the more casual name, if we can say that with God. It is the name that is used of God when the context calls for God's relationship, when this warmth, when his love, this compassion towards people. This is when Yahweh appears. And so the name Yahweh always signifies God's presence and his desire to have relationship with his people. 
Now, if you just look in the text that we're reading, just look around before and, and, and a little after it. Look at all these markers where God is saying to Moses about his presence. I mean, look at verse 12 of chapter 3. I mean, God just straight up says to Moses, I will be with you. In verse 15 that we read, thus you will say to the sons of Israel, the Lord your God, your fathers, has sent me to you. Verse 18, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Here he is. Verse 20 of chapter 3, I will stretch out my hand. I am present with you. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, God says, I will be with your mouth. So everywhere Moses goes, there's Yahweh. You're going to go into Pharaoh's chambers? It's going to be a little bit of a scary thing? God says, I'm right there with you. Yahweh. Okay, now I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd. I'm kind of a theology guy. I kind of dive into this stuff, so I hope you're not bored with me yet. But uh, just can I, if I can just chase a little rabbit down a rabbit hole for a second, I think you'll find this very fascinating. I love to study the Bible. I love to just unearth nuggets like the one I'm about to tell you. But let me just tell you a little bit of a story, a little example here. And you want to talk about God's presence. Watch this. About 150, 200 years ago, in Germany, there really rose up these very, very liberal theology scholars. So the, the universities and the seminaries in Germany in the 19th century, they really began to put out these scholars that didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. They didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. They did not believe in the inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible. They, they, they thought really that most of the Bible is just a, was, was mythology. It was allegory. It was fairy tale. And it was, it was very, very, very apart from anything we would know as something we would consider a traditional view of Christianity and the Bible. So one of the things that these liberal scholars did was they believed that if they could attack the first book of the Bible, Genesis, they could make all of Christianity crumble. And by the way, they're, they're not necessarily wrong. So much of everything we understand about Christianity and God and us and why Jesus came, all of this is right there in the book of Genesis. By the way, in fact, the whole Bible is really just one big long story. We call it a meta-narrative. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the universe, but Genesis 3, all the way to the end of Revelation, is one long story of how we sinned and ruined all of that and how God is redeeming it through his son Jesus. I mean, you even see the reference to Jesus right there in Genesis 3, when God has killed some animals to provide skin, clothing, covering for Adam and Eve, right? Someone has to die. There has to be bloodshed to make this right. So back to our liberal scholars. So that, oh, we can attend. So, you know, the old traditional view is that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. And again, I'm an old fuddy-duddy. I think Moses did write the first five books of the Bible. I'll tell you why I think Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Because when you read in the Gospels, Jesus thought Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So maybe I'm dumb and maybe I'm backward, but I'm just going to go with what Jesus says, okay? But here's what they said. They said oh, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. This really isn't from the mind of God. The book of Genesis is this collaboration of these people over a long period of time, and they just kind of put all this stuff together, and this really isn't a divine word. In fact, they would say, we'll prove it to you. Why is there two accounts of creation? You ever notice that? Genesis 1, God creates the universe. Genesis 2, God's creating again. 
And you go, well, why do we need the same story twice? And these liberal scholars said, that's because one man didn't write it. And then they said, we can do you one better. You ready? Watch this. This was the icing on the cake, man. This is a big deal for them. In Genesis 1, every reference to God is the name Elohim. Elohim is God's suit and tie name. Elohim is his cosmic, universal, powerful, you know, that's his name. But every reference to God in Genesis 2 to 4 is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's business casual name, if, I can, if I'm not being profane by using those uh, analogies. And so the, the scholar said, well, see, it's simple. This man over here, well, he wrote his version of creation, and he liked to use the name Elohim. But this man over here at a different place in a different time, he wrote his version of creation, and he liked to use the name Yahweh. And so they say it's written by two different people. There you go. This really isn't the word of God. I, let's just hang on. And you'll see now why my little story here points to his presence with us. You know, wouldn't it make sense? By the way, if you, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it is two accounts of creation, but from very different perspectives. Genesis 1 is where God creates the universe. It's Genesis 1 where God creates the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies. I mean, that's Genesis 1. And by the way, it would make sense then for Moses, speaking about the universal creation, to use God's cosmic name, Elohim. But Genesis 2 never leaves the Garden of Eden. You ever notice that? Genesis 2 is all about God and his relationship with Adam and Eve. How he created them. This is where we see that in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve would take walks with God. Wouldn't it make sense then? When you're describing creation at 30,000 feet, universal, use Elohim. But when you're describing creation at 10 feet, personal, use Yahweh. And to me, it's Moses just telling us how much God really loves us, his creation made in his image. He is Elohim to us, absolutely, but he is also Yahweh. You see it? By the way, if you'd like to keep score of these things, watch this. I said in Genesis 2 to 4, every reference to God's name is Yahweh except one. There is one instance of Elohim in Genesis 2 to 4. Guess where it is? It's when Satan comes slithering up next to Eve and he begins to lie about God. Oh, <laughs> want you to eat that fruit because if you eat it you'll be just like him he's lying to you and moses i think almost in a way to correct satan almost in a way to say the god that satan is describing is not the god of the bible moses in that one instance flips back to god's cosmic name and you know the lesson that teaches us friends i hope you'll look at me and listen to this you ready what that teaches us is this you better make good and sure that the God you are following is the God of the Bible and not the God you have created. There's a lot of that going on today. 
Oh, I'll, I'll kind of shape and, 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 and make God or make his word into something that lets me get away with whatever I want to get away with. That's not how it works. Friends, do you see that then? He's, not, he's, he's Elohim, but he's Yahweh. And that gives me a lot of confidence. That tells me it doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what challenge I am facing. I can put my feet on the shores of the Red Sea in my life. And I know that he is with me. You know, I, I, think, about, uh, I think about Elisha and Gehazi at Dothan. You want to think about God's presence with you. You remember that story? It was 2 Kings 6. Remember, they're in Dothan, Elisha and his servant Gehazi, and they're in this town in Dothan, and, 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 and Gehazi goes out and looks, and all around them, they're completely surrounded by the armies of Syria. And, the, and, and Gehazi comes back in, and he says, oh, Elisha, we're going to die, we're going to die. He's, he's panicking, right? We're going we're to die. The armies are all around us. They've surrounded us. And Elisha's sitting here cool as a cucumber. By the way, Gehazi is Moses chapter 3. Elisha is Moses chapter 14. And you remember what he says in the story? Elisha looks at Gehazi and says, it's going to be okay. God is with us. And then Elisha prays. And if you remember the story, what does he pray? He says, God, open the eyes of my friend Gehazi and let him see your presence. And Gehazi goes back outside, and he sees the whole Syrian army surrounding them, but all intermingled with the Syrian army are the angels of God. They're going to be okay. I think about John G. Payton when he went to the Hebrides Islands, and he and his wife go onto the island, and it's full of cannibals. And they were warned, don't go there, you're going to die. And they went anyway. They felt God had called them there. And, and they, 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 they established a little makeshift hut right there near the beach to, to, to stay their first few nights. And one night, he and his wife were in the hut, and they, they, they can hear the cannibals outside. And they can hear that the cannibals are all in the trees in the jungle right by their hut. And, and, the, and they're, just, they're preparing to die, and they just sit there and they pray together. And the cannibals never come. And in God's grace and providence, about a year later, he allowed the chief of the tribe and John Payton to have a friendship. And Payton looks at the chief and says, just out of my morbid curiosity, I have to know when we first came to this island, you surrounded my hut. Why didn't you come and kill me? And the tribal chief kind of looked at him funny and he said, well... We, we, we did. We came to your hut, and we were going to kill you, and we were going to eat you. But when we came to your hut, your hut was surrounded by bright, glowing, fiery warriors. So we left. Now, friends, you hear those stories. You think God is with you? He is. Now, let me give you a second thing real quick. You can have God confidence when you know he's with you. Another one you can have, you can have God confidence when you're willing to obey him even though you don't feel like it. Is that not Moses in this text? Moses says, to, God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to obey me in this. And Moses says, God, I do not feel like it. <laughs> that does not sound like a good idea to me. I do not want to do this. And even though Moses 
did not have any confidence to do this. Even though he didn't want to do this, what does Moses do? He goes and obeys him. So even when you don't feel like it, we need to obey. And God will tell us things in his word that we don't want to obey. We don't feel like doing that today. I don't feel like being, I don't feel like reading my Bible today. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like sharing Christ with my coworker. I, I don't feel like resisting that temptation today, God. But even when we don't feel like it, just like Moses, we need to obey. And it comes back to your God confidence. If your confidence is in God, you're going to want to obey, even on those days when you feel weak, even if you feel confident. Even on those days where I'm feeling good and I want to rush in there and I want to charge the gates of hell with a squirt pistol and all that kind of stuff, my confidence is still in him. It's not in me. So, uh, you can probably tell by looking at me, I played football, right? And I also have never passed a Mexican food restaurant that I, you know, didn't stop me. Y'all can just tell by looking at me, right? So, in football, I, I, in football, I, played, uh, I played tight end on offense and I played defensive end on defense. And uh, I can remember one time we, um, we had a pretty good team one year, and uh, early in that season, you know, you kind of play the, the worst teams at the beginning. Early in that season, we go out there and won the game. And in football, you can't really tell from the other side of the field the size of your competition. It's not like basketball, but when you're looking way down there, you don't really know how big the other team is until you line up across them from that first snap, Right. And so I, I, I remember this vividly. We go to play this team. They, they weren't that great. And uh, I'm playing defense. And uh, here comes the first snap of the game. And I'm, I, they run out a tight end across the line from me. And he's this tall. And he might weigh 90 pounds if he was carrying a couple of bags of rocks. Okay? And, man, my confidence level went shroom through the roof. I was like, oh. I'm going to have the game of my life. Here it comes. You ready? I'm going to crush this kid. I'm going to have so many sacks. I'm going to have so many tackles for loss. Uh, man, and I was just salivating. Let's go snap the ball. This little guy is going to be history. And they snapped the ball. I still to this day don't know how he did it. But as soon as the ball was snapped, this little guy dives right at my shins and knocks me on top of him. And they ran the ball right past me. And I can hear my coach, Fisher, what are you doing? And I got up and I was like, you got lucky that time. <laughs> they snap it again. He does the same thing. I mean, he dives right at my knee. I don't know how he did it. He knocks me right on top of him. And he does this the whole game. I can't figure this guy out. Right? I mean, I'm up there doing this. I'm up here doing that. Like bullfighter. I'm trying to get away. I can't get away from this kid. And I went into that game with my confidence way up here. And, man, it was about down here by the end of the, uh, the fourth quarter. We got to the end of the season, district championship. We line up on the first snap, and, oh, boy, we look across the line, and every one of those guys on the offensive line, they are one head taller than us and one foot wider than us, every one of them. And I looked at that guy across the line from me and I was like, this is going to be a long day. And you know, after the first series, the coach got us on the sideline and he talked some sense into us, reminded us of our fundamentals. And you know what? We did okay that day. But I always think about that. Sometimes your confidence level is really high, but if it's just in you, it might end up down here. 
And other days when you get up in the morning and say, man, Lord, I don't know if I can do this today. I don't know if I can obey you in this. I don't know if I can follow you in this. And my confidence is down here. But if it's in God, even on the good days, even on the bad days, the point is in every day, if you put your confidence in God, whether you feel like it or not, you won't be disappointed. And the last thing I want to share with you is this. We're going to have God confidence when we just learn to trust what God is telling us. So when I know that he is present with me, when I obey him whether I feel like it or not, and when I just trust him, even if what he says to me sounds unbelievable. Now, y'all look back at chapter 3, look at verse 18. So here's Moses, oh, God, God, I can't do this, I can't do this. And look at what God says to Moses in verse 18 in chapter 3. He says, they will pay heed to what you say. And then in verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go. But you mix those two verses with verse 12, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what to say. Do y'all see what 18 and 19 is doing? Don't miss it. God is telling Moses the future. Moses, you're going to go in there, <laughs> and I know you don't feel like it, and I know it seems like it's against all odds, and I know this all sounds impossible, but guess what? This is how it's going to play out. Your people, my people, are going to listen to you, and Pharaoh is going to give you a hard time, but I'm going to tell you what to say. And you know what? Whatever, whatever Pharaoh and his little magicians can come up with, I'm going to prove that I'm greater and stronger and better than all those guys. Friends, you know what really just makes me so confident more than anything? I mean, other than who God is, is I know how all this is going to end. Just like Moses. God tells Moses, Moses, go in there. It's not going to be easy, but you're going to win. And sometimes in my life, and it feels like this isn't easy, God, and sometimes I wonder, are you really here with me? God, is this really going to work out? But you know what? I've read to the end of the book, and guess who wins? God does. And all who are following God and all whose confidence are in God, you will be the winner, even if you feel like a loser right now. That's how it all ends. This is why, friends, I don't want to put my faith and I don't want to put my confidence in me or anyone or anything else. I only want to put my faith and my confidence in the one who loves me, who is with me, who saves me, who created me, who will ultimately be the winner. Don't you want to do that? I'm going to tell you the story to close. Um, grew, up, grew up in a home without a dad. Um, my brother, who's nine years older than me, kind of filled in on that a little bit. And my brother and I, we got a really, really great connection over, believe it or not, sports, right? <laughs> You're like, who would have guessed? But he, he took me, we, we grew up, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. He took me to Rangers games and Mavericks games and Cowboys games and high school games. And he took me to all these, all these sports. Okay, so we had this really big thing on sports. So 1980, I'm, uh, I'm like, uh, I'm 10. And the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, are going on in Lake Placid, New York. And so, you know, we're, we're, my brother and I were following that and everything. And uh, if you remember, 1980 is the miracle on ice, right? Remember that? When the United States beat the Russians in hockey. 
Now, it really was amazing because just like a month before that game, the Russians beat us in Madison Square Garden like 14 to 3. If that was in football score, it'd be like 100 to 4. I mean, it's just like crazy, right? And so we had no chance. It's, 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 it's the thing to put us into the semifinal deal. We got no chance to beat the Russians. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting at home. I'd come home from school. About 5 o'clock, my brother bursts in the door from work. And he says, Todd, Todd, you're not going to believe it. We beat the Russians in hockey. And I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. You see, what, we, what a lot of people don't realize is the United States played the Russians that day in the afternoon. And what ABC aired that night was a tape delay. In fact, they probably weren't even going to air it because they knew we were going to get destroyed by the Russians in hockey. But when we won, <laughs> they, they put it on TV. And so I, 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 will, I will never forget watching that game with my brother, right? And we watched it that night, right? And I mean, we were on the edge of our seat. You ever been that like that for one of your sports teams or something like that? You're watching and you're wanting them to win so bad. And I was kind of like that, you know, and it was an amazing game. And about, about 10 minutes left to go in the third period, we went up four to three. And then the Russians just did an all-out onslaught on our goal. But you couldn't have blown that puck past Jim Craig, our goalie, with a howitzer. I mean, he was stopping and blocking everything. And we were all into it. But I'm going to tell you something. As I watched that game, I watched it with this passion. I watched it like this. But you know what? I wasn't really nervous. You know why? Because I already knew that we won the game. And I just want to tell you right now, friend, I, I, don't, I don't know any of you, and I don't know what you're facing. Maybe you're dealing with something in your financial life. Maybe you're dealing with something with work. You're dealing with something at school. You're dealing with something in your marriage. You're dealing with something with your children. I don't know. Maybe you've just been told you have cancer. Here's what I want you to know this morning. I want you to know that wherever you find yourself, God is with you. And he is the winner. And when I know that I am following God, who is the victor, Things can get hard and things can get tough, but it gives me a confidence. I don't have to be nervous. I don't have to worry. I know that my faith and my life is well-founded when I am following the one who created me and saves me. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, this this example from the life of Moses that teaches us so much, Lord, about you and about ourselves. Thank you, God, that you, you are Elohim. You are the great creator. There is no one, there is no thing greater than you. But at the same time, Lord, thank, thank you that you are Yahweh. You are the one who loves us. You are the one who cares for us. You are the one who, who knows us better than anyone else, and you are the one who is present with us in everything we face in life. So thank you, Father, that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we can have confidence in you. And you sending Jesus to this earth, born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, who gave his life as a sacrifice, as our substitute on the cross.
And through his perfect death and sacrifice, he satisfied your perfect demands for righteousness. And on the cross, Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. And so thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you, Lord, that salvation is free. We do not earn it. We do not deserve it. We receive it through faith. And so through faith, God, we thank you that our confidence can rest in you. Our lives, our purpose, our worldview, everything about us can rest in you. And even though, Lord, you do not promise that following you will be easy, God, you do remind us that you were with us And in the end, you're the winner. And so, Father, I pray that when we are tempted to follow and have confidence in things other than you, remind us of these truths today. I pray for anyone in this room, anyone listening online who who has not made the commitment to put their faith, their life, their confidence in Christ, that today they may do so. And those of us who love you, who know you, who follow you, Lord, remind us anew today of your presence in our lives, of your great power, and that you, God, are the victor. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no doubt in my mind this morning that this was the word that we needed to hear. It's the word that I needed to hear, a word that you needed to hear. And the right response to God's Word is always, always to lean in, to press into Him, to respond in obedience, to respond in submission, to respond by saying, God, I'm yours. I trust you. Maybe this morning God is directing you to place your faith and your trust in Him. You know that He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, even as Dr. Fisher just prayed. He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And today you're ready to surrender your heart and your life to Jesus. Then in a moment as we sing, We want to offer you the opportunity to come. Maybe God is directing you in some other way. And the response this morning is just to say, yes, Lord. Yes, I trust you. Yes, God, I'm willing to follow. Yes, Lord, I need your presence in my life to guide me, direct me, to provide, to lead me. However God is stirring your heart, we want to encourage you to respond to him this morning. So as we stand together to sing this song, we praise the name of the Lord our God. And even as we sing, if God's directing you to respond to Him this morning, then our altar is open, our staff are here at the front. You come, you respond in obedience as God directs you while we sing.